How you guys doing? Okay, that's much, yeah, okay. I, I just heard someone say good. Was that you, Kevin? The fact that I only heard Kevin say good is not good for everyone else. He didn't even have to yell that hard. Guys, I, before I get into the message, I do want to announce that we are doing another round of Starting Point, and I love Starting Point, and I can fit this into my message. Guys, Starting Point is such an important part of 514 Church. It's such an important part of the journey that we all go on. If you guys are in here today and you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to, to you know, give up your life or, or to, to figure out what uh, the Bible is saying or what God is saying, what it means to um, follow him and that he died on the cross for you. What does that all mean? Starting point is the place for you. We've even had people who have been in church and still have questions. This is a safe place that you can come and explore the ideas of faith. It's over at our church offices, 97 East Main Street. It starts this Tuesday at 7 p.m. You guys are not going to want to miss it. If that is you, go and sign up right now. I'll give you the time to go do that. Just kidding. I'm going to start. Um, guys, we are so glad. Oh, I jumped ahead. Um, guys, we are so glad you're here today. Any first timers? Yeah, nice. Thanks for coming. Yeah, we're really excited you're here. Yeah, I see you right there. That's awesome. Thanks for coming. Um, a little bit about me. I am the children's guy, as Joel mentioned. So, like, I realized that when I get up here, you guys are all very quiet. Like, you hear that? That's actually more distracting. It's uncomfortable to me. So I appreciate some audience interaction. I appreciate, you know, if you, got, if you like something I said, just go out and yell amen. Some of you may be uncomfortable with that. If you, if you think I'm funny, go ahead and laugh. So I'm going to give you a space to go ahead and try that. You can yell out whatever you want as long as it's church appropriate. Okay? All right. One, two, three. Oh, beautiful. You guys, man, you guys are a smart crowd. You guys are a smart crowd. Um, I want to I, I start off today with a story um, that's going to sound really sad, but I want to encourage you to find the humor in it, okay? Because I have, looking back on it, I find this story funny, um, but it's going to start off very sad, and you'll understand what I mean. About six years ago, my grandpa passed away, and this is not the funny part, um, but we were at the funeral, and I was very lucky to have my grandpa's for as long as I did. I was... Um, had 22 years with him. We were very close. We lived on the same street. Like he lived like five houses down at one point. So we would go down and visit. We were very close. I was very fortunate to have the time that I did have. And so we went to the funeral. We were at the viewing hours, which is like the most uncomfortable thing. Can we all agree? Like whoever started that process is like, what were they thinking? Right? Because you're grieving. You don't want to talk to people that you don't know. You know, like, and then they're coming through, and they don't know what to say, and you don't know what to say, and it's just like, it's just uncomfortable. And so we were greeting a bunch of people, and there were like 400 people that were coming through, and me and my sister were standing there, the casket is behind us, and we see this extended family member. And how do I, how do I want to put this uh, politely? Um, she's a bit of a wild card, okay? So she's one of those people that you know when she shows up, one thing is going to happen, and it's going to be offensive, you just don't know who she's going to offend, and you don't know how she's going to offend you, but you know you will be offended, okay? So my sister and I are like kind of bracing ourselves because we don't know if she's got it out of her system yet. And we see her walking up, and as she walked up, I knew, I knew she hadn't gotten out of her system. 
And so she looks at me and she looks at my sister and she looks back at me and I felt like, I felt like that kid when the teacher is trying to find the kid to call out, right? And you don't make eye contact, right? You know, everybody knows not to make eye contact, but I made eye contact. I knew. And I was like, oh, no, this is it. She's, go- she's going to offend me. And so she looked at my sister, and I kid you not, this is what she said. She looked at Lauren, and she said, oh, Lauren, you know, you were your grandpa's favorite grandchild. Uh, what? That's not okay. And then she looked back at me as if to say, Daniel, what do you think about that? And I swear this happened. And I cannot tell you exactly what I was thinking because this is a church service. But I can tell you that I was very proud of myself in that moment. I, she looked at me and I said, yeah, Lauren's pretty great. And I think she was satisfied with that, so she left to go eat a sandwich that we provided for her. Thank you for coming. I'm so glad we had this interaction. See you in the next 10 family reunions. Psych, I don't go. Um, <laughs> um, and so I, I realized something. Like, I didn't think about that again until I got back to school. So I, I went to Miami University, and I drove back, and now all of my family was in Columbus. So I was driving back, and I had two hours to drive back, and then I was in the midst of, like, a pretty difficult time, and that kept coming back. Like, wait a second. Was Lauren really the favorite grandchild? Those of you who know Lauren know that couldn't possibly be true. But I kept racking my brain, and I started to think, well, what did my grandpa think about me? And you see, this relative, this distant relative, had given me a cue that started to shape the way I thought my grandpa viewed me. And then I asked a really dangerous question that I think we've all asked. What do other people think about me? Raise your hand if you thought this. If you don't have your hand raised, you are a liar. We all have thought about this at some point. And so for me, it became a really dangerous question because the relationships that I had with my roommates and the relationships that I had with the people at school at that point in my life were really, really tumultuous. They were filled with tension. It was difficult. It was not a fun situation. So I started looking at the cues that this lady was giving me, right? And then I started evaluating the cues that I was receiving around from from the people around me at school and the people that I lived with. And I started to come up on the idea that I might not be as lovable as I thought I was, right? You know, with my witty jokes and and all that. No, I, I started to form this idea that maybe there was something wrong with me, that maybe people didn't like me. And I started to form my identity around it, and I got, guys, I got messed up because of a stupid comment at a funeral. I was messed up. And so, We all receive cues from somewhere. Our society is structured in a way that we are constantly receiving cues from something, somewhere, whether it's social media, like yuck, right? We are constantly getting cues of like, hey, this is what you have to do to get likes, or this is what you have to do to be important, or this is what you have to do to get followers. At work, this is what you have to do to make money. This is what you have to do to have friends. This is what you have to do to feel okay about being you. And if we're not careful, we can let those negative cues drown out the positive cues that we receive. Because in my life, I was also receiving a lot of positive reinforcement. 
The problem was they just weren't as loud as the negative ones. And so I focused on the negative ones, and I think all of us do this. No matter where you are in your stage of life, there is a cue that is trying to inform yourself about who you are. And when we listen to the cues, when we get our cue from the wrong place, we experience a few things in our life. And now these were the things that I experienced. These are the things that most of us can relate to. These aren't the only things we experience, okay? The first thing that I believe we experience is shame, Shame tells us we're wrong. Not that we made a mistake, not that we messed up, that we are wrong. And that we will never be able to get the love and affection that we want, the love and affection we think we need, because there's something about us that is wrong, that's incorrect. Maybe for you guys this looks like a relationship where there's not much grace or there's not much forgiveness. And so you feel like you are constantly living under the gun of what happened What you did, that mess up that you had two days ago or two weeks ago or two months ago or two years ago. And you will never escape the reality that you are imperfect. You feel like your faults keep you from getting the love that you need. The second thing that we experience when we take our cues from the wrong source, perfectionism. Our culture is built on perfectionism. Think about it. I started to get graded like letter grades in third grade when my brain had never been smaller. I was expected to perform well on a test, and when I got it wrong, there was a penalty for it. Hey, you want to you wanna get a good grade? You want to be the best student? Don't mess up. Don't mess up. John McCambridge talked about it last week, how sports put us in a pressure cooker, Right? Athletes know exactly what they need to do to perform their way into affection, into love, into attention, and so their identity becomes based around performance. I was a stage performer. I did improv. I did stand-up comedy. I did acting. And so I learned very quickly what got me applause. And if you've ever been on stage and have received applause, you know it's very intoxicating. And so if you base your identity around getting applause, that's a dangerous, dangerous road. Do not go down it, because I did, and it stunk. Because the thing that I was experiencing was trying to be perfect so that I could get the attention and the love that I needed. The third thing that we experienced, and this is another one that I just fell right into. This is something I've struggled with my whole life. It's anger and resentment. I was receiving cues from the people around me. I was receiving cues from the things that I heard that informed my opinion about me. And I didn't just like get, try to experience shame or try to be perfect. I got angry. I got angry with people. I got angry with myself because I wasn't perfect and I did make mistakes. And most importantly, I got angry with God. I was resentful, and I ruined a lot of relationships because I was angry, because I was listening to the wrong cues. And when you continue to hear the cues from the wrong source, from the negative source, if you're not careful, it defines you. Your identity becomes wrapped up in what other people think about you. And that shapes your view of what you think about you. And then we ask this question. Well, what does God think about me? If you are receiving your cues from the wrong source, you are not going to like the answer to this question. Because I believe, as a church nationwide, okay, like the capital C church, 
there's a problem because people have heard more than any other fact about God that they are loved by God. And I don't care if this is your first day in church or if you've been in church your entire life, if you were born in a church, it doesn't matter. That is the hardest thing about God to believe. Because we are constantly receiving cues that try to inform us of who we are. And if we allow those cues to form that identity, when we hear that God loves us, you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to believe it. We're going to be angry. We're going we're to feel shame. We're going to try and perform our way into love and affection from God and love and affection from people. And that's just a dangerous path. And so today, my goal is to figure out where are we getting our cues from? What is the source? And if we shouldn't be getting our cues from the places that we are getting them, where do we get them? And so we're going to look at a man in the Bible, and his name was John. Now, John, um, John is one of the disciples, and as I dove into the books that John wrote, I, I continued to just be blown away by this man. His character, everything that he wrote, I was, I, I was just so... Uh, polarized by. It captured my imagination. And now John was a disciple. He was one of the ones that Jesus picked. He was a fisherman, right? Joel talked about that story. He said, come, come with me and I will make you fishers of men. And now John had a brother, James, right? And so he, he was young. Now fishermen were considered pretty like low class, right? They were like exiled. They were like not really the the ones who were well-respected. And on top of that, John was like really young. He was like a teenager. So imagine being a teenage fisherman. That's like the worst thing ever. That's like, you know, being in middle school, right? It's middle school all over again. And so like he's experiencing, if you're in middle school, you are not the worst thing. Middle school is the worst thing. Just wanted to clarify. So John was, the fact that like the Messiah, the fact that the teacher, uh, this rabbi, God would come and interact with John, that was, that was pretty cool. And so John became one of Jesus' closest friends. And in fact, he, he earned himself a nickname called one of the sons of thunder, right? And so John was brash. He was bold. And he asked, one, at one point, they were, they were facing resistance, trying to find a place to be. And he asked God, Jesus, to rain down fire upon these people who weren't letting him stay in this place, right? Like he was a pretty bold dude. But as he learned from Jesus, as he grew with Jesus, he discovered this patience and this calmness about him, and he learned from God. And so John went through, he was the only disciple, guys, at the foot of the cross. And that says something about the character of John. All of the other disciples had scattered. All of them had left, but John was at the foot of the cross, and then after he witnessed the death of Jesus, John went and he scattered as well. And they went and he became a fisherman again, abandoning all the lessons he had learned from Jesus, abandoning all the things that he had figured out, the miracles, the things that he had witnessed, he abandoned it to go back to being a fisherman. And you see, Jesus showed up on the beach, he pursued John and the other disciples, he cooked them breakfast, he drew them near. And he forgave them. He made them breakfast and he forgave them and he gave them a call. He said, go out and make, you know, catch fish. Go out and catch people, right? Bring people and share them the good news that I died on the cross for. And so John went out and he became a pillar of the church. 
He became a preacher. He was out, he was imprisoned, and he was beaten, and he was uh, jailed, and then he lived in exile, and he still taught about Jesus and the good news that Jesus had. And around 70 AD, okay, so this is like Jesus was 33 when he died, so like 37 years roughly after Jesus had died, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and John had to leave because the Romans were persecuting Christians. They were going through and they were killing Christians, they were persecuting them, and so John had to go to Asia to a place called Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he wrote the Gospel of John. 37 years after these events, what I find so fascinating about that is that John wasn't writing these events as he was experiencing them. He was writing these as he was looking back with wisdom to see exactly what he got out of his experience with Jesus. And the nickname that he gave himself all that time later is really telling about John's experience. It's really telling about where he got his cues. And the nickname that John gave himself was the disciple whom Jesus loved. John kind of seems like a tool maybe, right? I know that's controversial. I don't mean that in any disrespect. But if I were to get up here and say, hey, I'm the one that Jesus loves, you guys would think, this guy's a jerk, right? This guy is arrogant. This guy is a fool, and it would seem like when I first read this, it seemed like maybe John was just one of those really overconfident guys. You know, the type, like, I'm one of those types. Like, I, I'm confident in things that I shouldn't be confident in. My sister, who I referenced earlier, when she meets people I went to high school with, her first response is, I'm so sorry. Right? Like, that's the kind of guy. Because, like, overconfident people ruffle feathers, don't they? And so I imagined that John was in that same boat. Like, when the other disciples met somebody that, interacted with John, like, yeah, I met uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And they're like, oh, John, we're so sorry about John. We love John. We love him. He, John's great. John's great, but we're sorry about him, right? But then I started to think about the timing at which John was writing this. And the idea that John would bring glory to himself never crossed his mind, but in fact, John understood that God's love didn't come to him based off an absence of fault or a presumptuous nature, right? John's, this title came to John because in spite of that, God still loved him. And his whole identity was wrapped up in this idea that no matter what I've done, Jesus has seen the darkest parts of my heart. He's seen the things that I am afraid to say out loud to all of the people, and yet I am still the one that Jesus loved. You see, if John were taking his cues from the same place we take our cues from the world, he would never have written this because he would have probably, he would have probably written, I'm the disciple that Jesus used to love because Jesus was gone and his friends were being murdered and he was in exile and yet this was what he wanted us to know more than anything else, is that he was loved by God. And it wasn't that he was loved more, it's that he was loved in spite of everything that he'd done, and he had understood it better than anyone else. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, it's a name that John gives to himself. He took the name that most accurately described him. When we receive 
cues and signals from people. The cue that I received in the beginning story told me that I was the grandchild that grandpa loved a little bit less. The name that most accurately described John was the one that Jesus loved. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Is that exciting? Come on. Yeah, you guys have had time to sleep in. Like, let's get crazy. Thanks, Tom. I hear you back there. Right? And so, go on to say, it says, he looked on Jesus' love as the source and the root of everything about himself. If he had any courage, if he had any faithfulness, if he had any depth of knowledge, it was because Jesus had loved these things into him. His whole identity was wrapped up in the idea that he was loved by God, that he didn't care to proudly proclaim and to publish the fact that he was someone who Jesus loved. And he didn't care what other people thought about that. He only cared that he was the one that Jesus loved and that God loved him and that anything good about himself came because Jesus loved him. Amen. And so John knew something the other disciples didn't. John lived his life in a way that was different because he trusted that he was loved by God. Imagine if your identity wasn't the way you perform or the things that you've done. Imagine if your identity, when you introduce yourself at work to someone new, you said, hey, I'm someone that Jesus loves. They may look at you weird, but imagine if you believed that that was true. Because we have a hard time believing that God loves us. We can hear it up here and we can think it up here, but we don't believe it in here. John believed it in his heart. It informed everything about himself. John's identity was that he was loved by God. And it changed the way he interacted with the world. And so we're going to go back. He says it five times. Five times in the Gospel of John. And we're going to go back and we're going to look at three very specific times that he said it. Because it's easy for us to say, oh, cool, I'm loved by God. But what does that mean? What do I do with it? Because I've grown up in church. I accepted Jesus at five years old. And guess what? I still struggle listening to the other cues. John figured something out, though. John 13, 23, this is the first time he says it. Now, this is at the Last Supper. Keep in mind that Jesus had just got done washing the feet of the disciples. Jesus had basically said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve you. Now, go and do the same. This was an intimate setting. This was a very close relationship. Jesus knew that this was the last time they were all going to be together before he died. And so, in this day, the, the custom was they sat in a circle, and the seat next to the host was reserved. It was reserved for the, someone very special. This is what it says. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. The disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. Jesus reserved the seat next to him it's supposed to be an honor, a sign of affection for John. And John felt loved. John was in cl the closest proximity to Jesus. And the thing that he wanted us to know that he took away from that encounter was that Jesus loved him. And I don't know about you, but I'm weird about my personal space. Anyone else weird about their personal space? Yeah? Yeah, cool. Thanks, man. I'll give you a hug later. Um, thanks for laughing at that, guys. Guys, there are like four people that I reserve, like I, I, I give hugs to my, in this order. My dog, my fiance, Janet, she's in here. 
Yeah, okay, cool. Um, and then my niece, and then four is my dog, right? So it goes back. And so, like, I just imagine the people that I love the most, the things that I love most in this world are the people that I give hugs to, the people that I have physical contact with. Jesus and John were close. John was reclining onto him. If, someone, if one of my friends tried it, I love all my friends, but if they tried that, I'm like, dude, get away. It's like two other couches in this place, right? Bryce? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Guys, the thing that John took away from this interaction, the close proximity to Jesus, was that he was loved. The next time that this is brought up is when Jesus is on the cross. Now remember, I said John was the only disciple at the foot of the cross. And I find this significant because, you know, the worst place to be for a Jesus follower is around the people who are killing the person of Jesus. But John was there. He was there. He was the only disciple that was there. He was in close proximity with Jesus again, and the thing that he took away was that he was the disciple whom he loved. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. Jesus said to John, the disciple whom he loved, hey, my mother's going to take care of you, and you're going to take care of her. I find it interesting that as Jesus was struggling to breathe, he talked to John, and that John took away from that moment that he was loved. John could have been listening to the cues from the Romans, from the, the Pharisees, telling him that following Jesus was wrong. He could have been taking the cues from the other disciples who fled, but John took his cues from Jesus because Jesus knew him best and decided that he was still worth dying for. John was seeing Jesus' blood poured out, and he knew, imagine this, imagine watching it and knowing that you're the reason he's up there and that you didn't walk away feeling ashamed, you didn't walk away feeling this need to perform, you walk away feeling that you were loved. <sighs> That's a game changer, guys. That's a game changer. We need to, to adopt the same mentality. The, the last time that John says is in John 21, verse 7. Now, keep in mind, after Jesus died, John and the rest of the disciples were gone. They went back to fishing, and this is where we find them. It's important to know that Jesus had come back, and this was the third time he had seen them after he was coming back. So he knew that they had abandoned the cause. He knew that they weren't doing what they were called to do, and Jesus still went after them. That's important to note. Jesus knew, and he still went after them. And so they're on the boat, and they see Jesus on the beach. And John said, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, look, it's the Lord. Then they went, and Jesus made them breakfast. And he forgave them. And he said, now go and catch people. Go and love people. John knew in this moment, as he saw Jesus die on a cross, and then he abandoned what he was supposed to be doing, he still felt love because Jesus knew him. What do we take away from these? We take away that John 
was in close proximity to Jesus, and every time he was in close relationship with Jesus, he knew that he was loved. Now, keep in mind, when he wrote this, 70 AD, after he had to flee his home because his friends and everyone else were being murdered, crucified, beheaded, stoned to death, and his, the thing that was most important for us to know was that he was loved by Jesus. He experienced grace through Jesus dying on the cross. That's forgiveness that wipes away shame. And he experienced forgiveness on the beach. Guys, John, another 20 years later, right? So we're approaching 60 years after Jesus' death. I mean, I'm not 60 years old, but I, like, it's hard for me to, to keep one idea, one belief for a long time, right? How many of you guys have believed something for multiple years? Like, political opinions change, sports teams change. Like, your beliefs on things change because you grow with wisdom and age. And John's belief didn't waver because in 1 John, he was writing a letter to the Ephesus in 90 AD, still in exile, by the way, still not able to go home. There's 105 verses over five chapters of 1 John. And guess how many times love is mentioned? Someone throw something out. 37, oh, shooting for the moon, I love it, but not, not quite. 51, 51 times out of 105, John mentions the word love. Over half, uh, around half of the verses in the five chapters of 1 John have the word love in them because you see John understood that the one who knew him the most loved him the most. And if he wanted us to have the same kind of relationship with Jesus and the same kind of experience that he did, he knew that the thing that he had to get to us was this message of love. And for us to experience this, we need to draw close to Jesus. Because you see, Jesus knew the darkest corners of John's heart. And he chose to die anyway. And John kept following him. And he kept following him. And he kept following him. And he knew that he was loved. He was so secure in it. Because he had experienced it. Where are you taking your cues from? You need to take your cues from the one who knows you. There's a lot of people who give us statements about ourselves, who fill in this identity about us, and they, they know us, but they don't know us like Jesus knows us. They don't know us like God knows us. And there's a lot of people who, take, who give us cues and signals, and they don't know us at all, but they think they do. And if we allow ourselves to f feed into that, to listen to that, and to form our identity based off that, we're going to experience the burden of anger and shame and resentment and perfectionism. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of it. I'm tired of carrying that around. I'm tired of listening to cues that form my identity about myself, even from people who love me. I need to take my cues from the one who sees the darkest parts of my heart, the one who sees the worst aspects of my personality and chose to die for me anyway. Amen, man. I'm thankful for you, Tom Baker. Where are you getting your cues? Who are you listening to that's forming your identity? 
High schoolers, if you can figure this out, middle schoolers, if you can figure this out, everything will change. I want to speak to you guys because I had a difficult time in high school because I was angry and resentful because I was listening to the wrong things. And I discovered this too late. Take advantage of your small group leaders. Take advantage of this opportunity that you have. Guys, where are you getting your cues? Because the cues that you are receiving, this is important, the cues that you are receiving, you're sending out. And so if you are listening to the negative cues, if you're letting that form your opinion of yourself, the people who interact with you are going to be receiving the same cues. John understood that a restored relationship with God produces a right relationship with others. And I think there's enough negative cues in our society, enough negative cues going on in our world, that the people who know where to get the right cue from need to start acting like we know where to get the right cue. Amen? If everybody in this room did this, if everybody in this room did this, we would have a building and there would be no empty seats because the cues that we are receiving from God would be the cues that we are sending out to people. And there's enough people who struggle with the idea that God loves them that we can't, we can't afford to do that because people need to hear that God loves them and they need to feel that God loves them. And the best way for us to do that is for us to realize it and then for us to go out and do it. And this is so, so important. I've been writing this message for six years without realizing it. This has shaped the vision for 514 Kids. Our goal is to help kids see themselves the way that God sees them. Because not enough people understand that. And there's some messed up stuff that we experience as adults. This world is broken, and it's hurtful. And as our kids prepare to head into adulthood, as they prepare to experience life on earth, I don't want them questioning where to get their cues. I don't want them to ask the question, how does God see me? I want them to know that they are ones that Jesus loved. They are ones that Jesus died for. We as a church need to be a part of this idea. As individuals, we need to start to understand how God sees us. You guys, this is so important. We need to take our cues from the one who knows us, the one who died for us, the one who continually forgives us. And I promise if you do that, the way you interact with the world, the way you look at yourself, the way you look at others will change dramatically. This is so, so important. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us. God, thank you for knowing us, the worst parts about us, and choosing to die for us anyway. God, I thank you for the gospel of John. I thank you for the way he lived his life. God, I pray that we would all learn to draw close to you that we would all learn that close proximity to you is the best way for us to experience this love that you have for us. God, I pray that we would learn that you have wired us so that you tell us who we are, not the world. And we would let that reality sink into our hearts. Amen. Guys.